I'm going to ask you to imagine for a moment that you're a British soldier, or if you like, an American soldier, if that's more appropriate to your background, a British soldier in the Second World War. Now, while you're fighting in the war, you really don't know how that war is going to end. In fact, at many points, it looks like the Nazis are going to win. But imagine that you're sitting in your uniform in a field somewhere in Europe. It's 1940. The Nazi shells are exploding all around you. But then someone hands you the front page of a newspaper, and that newspaper is from the 8th of May, 1945. That's VE Day, Victory in Europe. Now that newspaper from the future gives you a glimpse of events that haven't happened yet. It certainly is not going to give you a detailed history of the Second World War. It's a long way from the history Winston Churchill wrote when the war was over. That filled six large volumes. That front page of the newspaper doesn't give you all the finer details of the war. But the headline on that newspaper tells you all that you need to know. The Allies win. And wouldn't that make all the difference to your attitude? You still wouldn't know how each little battle was going to pan out. You wouldn't know how your own life was going to go for the next few years. But you know now what the final outcome is going to be. So the shells whizzing around your ears are still just as loud and just as dangerous. But now you know they're being fired by the losing side. The muddy field that you're lying in is just as uncomfortable. But it's less likely now to demoralize you. Because you know all of the discomfort is going to be worth it. Now that is a little bit like what God does for us in Zechariah chapter 14. He gives us a glimpse of the future. Not all the little details of the future, certainly, but the headlines. He gives us enough for us to know the broad outline of the future. Enough for us to be encouraged and given confidence. In Zechariah 14, we're given headlines from the future. And if you're still looking for that in your Bible, it's on page 958. Now, as we have gone all the way through this book of Zechariah, we've read many prophecies about the future. And we've seen over the weeks how many of them were fulfilled during Jesus' first time on earth, particularly by his death on the cross. But this morning, as we come to the end of the book, God gives us a glimpse of events that are still in the future. They will be fulfilled when Jesus returns to earth. These headlines from the future are here to give us confidence and encouragement as we serve God today. So let me read the whole of chapter 14. 
A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. The whole land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high, from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the first gate, to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. 
And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. This chapter is describing the future. And it describes the future in ways that Zechariah's first audience could understand. And as we try to understand this chapter, we have to bear that in mind. So, for example, it would be a mistake for us to assume the future is going to be a time when we abandon cars and go back to using camels to get around. This prophecy about the future is given in a form that made sense to Zechariah's first audience. They used camels. And as we try to understand this prophecy today, we have to bear that in mind. That means we have to be very careful not to overinterpret what we read here. We're looking for the headlines, the main points. And thankfully, as we've seen so often throughout this book, the New Testament gives us a lot of help in understanding this passage. Zechariah 14 gives us five headlines from the future. We find the first one in verses 1 to 2. And as we reread these verses, we might wonder how on earth we're supposed to be encouraged by them. Because our passage begins by showing us a terrible time. Look again at verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered. And divide it up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked. And the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile. But the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. In previous chapters we've heard about attacks on God's city. We know that opposition is to be expected. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But the attack that's described here is on another level. This is a climactic attack. It's like the others, but it's worse. One writer describes it as a final onslaught. The end of chapter 13 spoke about God's people being refined and tested. And here a time of extreme testing is predicted. It's a prediction that is repeated in the New Testament. Jesus spoke about a future time of great distress, a time when his people will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. They will be hated by all nations. Jesus said, at that time, many will turn away from the faith. And will betray and hate each other. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. We know the church will always have its opponents. But Jesus spoke of a time of extreme opposition. And he also promised deliverance for those who stand firm. The book of Revelation repeats this prophecy of a terrible time for God's people. 
And Revelation also says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. This is a recurring headline in the Bible. Now we could speculate all day long about the details of this terrible time. When is it going to happen? Who's going to be in charge of these enemies of God's people? Can we find a way to predict who that person is going to be? But the Bible has not given us this headline from the future so we can speculate about it. It's not here so we can try to fill in the details ahead of time. Now, of course, you know as well as I know that that has not stopped people from speculating. Hundreds of books have been written. Thousands of sermons have been preached, all trying to fill in the details that God has chosen not to give us. But that is a misuse of this headline from the future. God has graciously given it to us so we can be prepared. Whatever the details of this terrible time turn out to be, forewarned is forearmed. Then having warned us about a terrible time, our passage goes on to tell us that terrible time is not going to be the end of the story. God has set a limit on that time. And he will intervene decisively to bring it to an end. Verses 3 to 5 promise deliverance for God's people. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Verse 3 tells us the Lord himself is going to come as a warrior to fight for his people, and he will deliver them. You might wonder about the significance of the Mount of Olives here. Well, verse 4 tells us the Mount of Olives is east of Jerusalem. And that links us back to another vision in the Old Testament a vision that was given to another prophet long before this one. Zechariah is talking to men and women who've been trying to rebuild Jerusalem. But back before the city of Jerusalem ever fell, Ezekiel had a vision of God abandoning Jerusalem. It's in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. And in that vision we're told that the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and it stopped above the mountain east of it. Ezekiel saw God leaving via the Mount of Olives. Now Zechariah sees him returning via the Mount of Olives. And making that connection with Ezekiel's vision is a way of saying, you know all about God leaving, don't you? But he will come back for good. 
And we're told that the Mount of Olives will be split in two to form a great valley. What's the significance of that? Well, verse 5 tells us this is a picture of God providing a place of refuge for his people. We're told they will flee by that valley towards God. And he will come to provide refuge and security for them. So does that mean the Mount of Olives will literally be split in two? Well, throughout this book, we've seen that what God says about Jerusalem is fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. That's how the New Testament reads these prophecies. It applies them to the church, which it calls the heavenly Jerusalem. So if the city of God is actually his worldwide church, then this valley of refuge is a way of talking about God's deliverance of his worldwide church. He will come with his angels, his people will go to meet him, and they will be delivered from their enemies. Jesus describes it like this. All the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Jesus' return will be something seen by every eye. Not just those who happen to be in a certain part of Israel. And for those who belong to Jesus, it will be a day of being gathered and delivered. And it will be a day of new creation. Verse 6. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold frosty darkness. It will be a unique day. A day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. Verse 6 says, literally, on that day there will be no light. The glorious things will congeal. The glorious things are the sun and moon. The word congeal means to thicken. We talk about blood or milk congealing, or curdling in the case of milk. But what does that mean here? It means those bright lights in the sky are going to stop being bright lights. The sun will stop producing light and the moon will stop reflecting it. It will be just like it was before God created those two great lights. And sure enough, verse 7 points us right back to the beginning of creation. The opening verses of Genesis chapter 1 describe the time before God made a distinction between the day and the night. And here verse 7 says the world will be returned to that state. This unique future day will be a new day of creation. In the book of Revelation, John describes this day. He says, I saw a new heaven and earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away. But God is not going to create a new sun and moon 
for this new heaven and earth. His new creation will have a much more glorious light. Revelation explains that for us too. Speaking about the new Jerusalem, we're told this. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So this is not just a return to the first creation. This is better. Then verse 8 says, On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. Again, we're back to the language of the first creation in Genesis. This time in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 tells us God was with the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And a river flowed from the Garden of Eden. That river watered the whole earth, we're told. It was a picture of God's presence nourishing all of his creation. From him flows the living water that his creation needs. That was true first time around in Eden. And Revelation tells us it will be true in the new creation too. John is again describing the new Jerusalem. He says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. In God's new creation, God's presence will be all that we need. He will be our light, and from him will come our living water. And here in our passage, verse 9 says this day of new creation will be a day of peace. It will be a day when the reign of the king is no longer contested. It will be a day when no rival God receives the honor that belongs to the one true God. Verse 9 says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. Then, as we would expect, verse 10 tells us, this future day will be a day of change and upheaval for the earth. This earth will be reformed. Verse 10, The whole land, from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high, from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses. And it will remain in its place. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. The picture here is of the city of God being elevated and made perfectly secure. Geba is a place to the north of Jerusalem and Rimon is to the south. The Arabah seems to be a reference to the hills that surround Jerusalem. Then you'll notice a lot of city gates are mentioned and a tower and wine presses. Those were points around the walls of ancient Jerusalem. If you followed those points, 
you would end up making a complete circuit of the city. So if we put the parts of this picture together, we have the land around God's city being reformed into a platform, a place where his city sits securely and safely. And according to verse 10, God's city will also be raised up high. It will be exalted and it will be safe. Now this is something that was also promised by earlier prophets. Both Isaiah and Micah promised that, this, in exactly the same words. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. That was Isaiah. Micah said the same thing. And it's repeated here in Zechariah. Now it is hard for us to imagine a reformed heaven and earth. It was described earlier in our reading from 2 Peter, but it's hard for us to imagine. Here, Zechariah describes it in ways his first audience can understand very well. As they listen to him, they can look out to the hills around Jerusalem. They can imagine great upheavals transforming the land. And in the middle of it, they can imagine Jerusalem standing high and perfectly secure. The New Testament tells us that not just a few miles in Palestine, but the whole earth will go through upheavals. In Revelation, God says he will make everything new. It will be good, as his first creation was good, and it will never be spoiled again. The beginning of chapter 14 described all the nations attacking God's people. And verse 3 tells us the Lord will go out to fight against those nations. But we haven't yet had that described for us. Verses 4 to 11 have focused on God delivering his people and making them secure. But now, verses 12 to 15 go back to describe that fight that was mentioned in verse 3. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. These verses describe judgment on God's enemies. What is described here is not a prolonged battle. It's not a long battle with casualties on both sides. No, this is sudden destruction of God's enemies. One writer sums up verse 13 by saying, their bodies will disintegrate on the spot. Flesh, eyes, and tongues. 
It's a horrible picture. And God's judgment will be horrible. He is too good a God to act like evil doesn't matter. It does matter, and it will be punished fully. Verse 1 mentioned God's people being plundered. But now verse 14 reverses that picture. We're told that the wealth of the nations is not theirs to keep. It will be collected from them. Several times in this book, God promised that many of his enemies will be joined with him. They will become his people. And that is the final headline of this passage. After God's terrible judgment has fallen, those who are left will be a holy people who worship the king. Verse 16. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. So there is a place for God's enemies in his new creation if they will turn to him in repentance. The festival of tabernacles was an annual celebration. It celebrated God's provision for his people and his rescue of his people. It celebrated his kingship over his people. And this is another example of explaining the future in ways that Zechariah's audience understand. They all celebrated the festival of tabernacles. So it's used to explain what life in God's new creation is going to be like. It's going to be a life of worship. But then what are we going to make of verses 17 to 19? If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. I think there are two ways that we can understand these verses. One possibility is that verses 17 to 19 are simply saying it will be unheard of for anyone in the new creation not to be worshipping God. Those who continue to rebel against God will have been removed from the picture by this stage. If that's what these verses mean, then mention of people not worshipping is hypothetical. And you'll notice verses 17 and 18 both start with the word if. They're saying there won't be any rebellion against God at this point. His rule will be absolute. But if there ever was any rebellion, it could not continue. That's one option for the meaning of these verses. Another possibility is that these verses give us more description of God's judgment that was mentioned in verses 12 to 15. 
elsewhere, the Bible makes it clear, God's enemies will be destroyed. Yes. But it will be an everlasting destruction. And they will never, never repent. So part of verses 19 could be a description of that everlasting destruction. That would mean these verses are almost like a split screen. While the worship and blessing of God's people is being described, alongside that, we're told about the eternal punishment of those who refuse to worship God and who refuse eternally. They will be without rain, without living water. And they will suffer the torment of ongoing plague. That certainly fits the Bible's descriptions of hell. So which of those two options is the right understanding of these verses? I don't know. But either way, the main point of the verses is the same. God's new creation will be a place where the king is worshipped. And finally, we're told God's new creation will be a place of holiness. Verse 20. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. In the Old Testament, the high priest wore a turban. It was part of his uniform when he appeared before God on behalf of the people. And on that turban, there was a little plate with an inscription. And the inscription said, Holy to the Lord. In other words, this man is set apart for God's service. But here, in God's new creation, everything is inscribed holy to the Lord. From horses to pots. And not just the pots that are used for certain religious rituals. Cooking pots are included too. point is, in God's new creation, even the most mundane, common things will be clean. They'll be holy. They will be set apart for God's use. And they will be fit for his use. And it's no surprise, actually, because since God's creation will fill, God's presence will fill his new creation... There's going to be no place for anything that's not holy. And again, the point is put across in ways these men and women could understand. So today, I would not take this as clear evidence there's going to be horses in the new heaven and earth. According to Old Testament law, horses were ceremonially unclean animals. They couldn't be in God's presence. So picturing them in God's new creation, marked holy to the Lord, that's a way of saying in God's eternal city, 
Things that were unclean will be made clean. Things that didn't belong in God's presence will belong. And if you and I have woken up to our own sinful condition, then this is a beautiful thing for us to hear. Never mind the horses, this is good news for unclean people like you and me. We can't scrub the stains of sin off ourselves. Only Jesus can make us clean. Back in chapter 3, Zechariah told us about a future servant of God who would give God's people clean clothes to wear. That promise has been fulfilled through Jesus' work on the cross. He took our sin on himself so we could be made clean. Verse 21 says, On that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. What does that mean? Well, Canaanites were well known for their evil practices. Many generations before this, they were the people living in Israel when God gave the land to his people, to Abraham's descendants. In fact, at that time, Israel was known as Canaan. And when God took the land away from the Canaanites, he was not mistreating them. He wasn't giving them a rough deal. God took the land away because he refused to put up with their evil any longer. That was the background to this word Canaanite. So by saying here there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord, we are being assured yet again there will be no impurity in God's new creation. His eternal city will be eternally pure. Those are Zechariah's five headlines from the future. In this passage, God gives us a glimpse into the future he has prepared. And no doubt there are many more details that you and I would like to have. But God has graciously given us this glimpse. It's here to encourage us. It's here to give us confidence to live for him today. We know who wins. These headlines call us to persevere. And they call us to pursue lives of holiness and worship. We know that those things will characterize our lives then. So they should increasingly characterize our lives now, today. Once we have come to God in repentance... Once we have received clean clothes from Jesus, we are then to pursue a life of cleanness. Now that does not mean we go and live in a cave somewhere because we are afraid of being contaminated by this world. Now we could sum up holy living with this command from the Apostle Paul. He says, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is holy living in a nutshell. 
It's not about withdrawing from real life. It's about living real life for God's glory. One day, we will live a life of perfect holiness. And we'll live it with God. In the meantime, we are to pursue holiness. And we can pursue it with confidence. Because we know there is a new creation ahead of us. So we're going to close this morning by committing ourselves to live by faith in God's promises. And let's commit to trust him to supply all the grace that we need. We're going to sing, by faith we see the hand of God and then amazing grace.